We have been working our way through the letter to the church in Rome uh, that was written by uh, the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul was a, uh, a man who was uh, redeemed and saved by Jesus of Nazareth and the resurrected Lord Jesus appointed Paul as being one of his authorized spokespersons. Uh, Paul was tasked with taking the good news of the message of the gospel, the good news that Jesus is the only Savior of sinners, uh, to the nations. Uh, he's writing to this church in Rome that he did not start. In fact, he hasn't visited it. Uh, but he desires to uh, go uh, to Rome and have them help and support him in sending uh, him to as far away as Spain to take the good news of the gospel to uh, the, the nations. And part of what he's doing is he's explaining to the church, uh, hey guys, don't worry about it. Just turn it off. Okay. Thanks. He's trying to take the good news of the gospel to, uh, to the nations, but he's needing to explain to the church in Rome more of the, the, the realities and the truth and the foundations of the gospel uh, so that they will understand why it is so important and necessary that this good news go out to the nations. Uh, and remember what Paul said is that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of sinners. And it is through faith that the righteousness of God is revealed, that we cannot make ourselves right or good before our God, but we must trust in the righteousness or the, that comes to us through faith in Christ. And in order to explain the goodness of this good news, Paul has been spending multiple chapters in telling us the, the bad news of how bad our situation is. And what that has brought up is he's been telling us more and more about the depth of our sin and our rebellion against God is it's led to people making excuses. And, and why this, the, the truth of sin and of God's righteous judgment of sin doesn't apply to them. Or it's led to people coming up with and trying to find loopholes in ways that, that this is, uh, that it doesn't apply uh, to, to them, that God would judge them for their, uh, their sin. But we're going to see that, that it continues to go further. And Paul is trying to address every sort of, uh, of issue that comes up in the hearts and minds of, of people when our sin comes before us of not wanting to hear this truth and wanting to say there's no way this is true about us. Paul, in making clear how bad the bad news is this week, uh, is going to address the tendency in humanity uh, to want to shift the blame. And, and move charges, not to focus on our own sin, but to begin to accuse God. Maybe you've experienced this before. Uh, uh, maybe uh, yourself, or we'll just say somebody you knew growing up, who after a, a, a hard test or a hard week of finals in school comes back and say, man, that teacher... She gave me an F. I can't believe she failed me. She's got it out for me. She's no fair. She's always got something against me. You start doing a little bit more question asking and investigating, and you ask, well, what, did you study for your no. did you Did you go to class like you should? No. 
Well, did you ever ask for help on the things that you didn't understand? Well, no. You see, instead of looking and seeing how they failed to live up to the standard, they're beginning to turn and, and judge and charge the teacher for doing what she should do in upholding the standard. Or maybe you experienced this with uh, on uh, a team you've played for before. That you hear a kid complaining about his lack of playing time. And if the reason is it's because of the coach. And he or she is just so mean and shows favorites and always does something for the other kids. And he's just always on my case. And I can't ever do nothing right. I'm always riding the bench. And you ask questions. Well, do you come to practice? Well, sometimes. Well, do you try hard and give it your all in practice? Well, no, it's too tough and it's too hot. And they're just asking me to do hard and difficult things. Well, how do you respond when the coach tries to correct and teach you? Well, I ignore him because I know better than he does. Well, so now you're saying that it's the coach's fault and you're charging him with injustice because he's upholding the standard of how one should participate as a good member of the team. You see, this shows up in all sorts of aspects of our lives. And as Paul is addressing the Jews here in uh, the church in Rome and objections that have come up to his gospel, this is what he's going to begin to apply and focus on this morning. And if we're honest with ourselves, we can see that these same things can bubble up in our own hearts, in our own lives. So, we're going to see a couple of different charges that are thrown out. Charges against God, and then Paul's going to set it straight and show us the charges that are there against the man. So, look with me if you would. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. This is on page 940. If you're there, uh, if you're following along in one of the black Bibles there in your seats. So, follow along with me if you would, beginning there in verse 1 of chapter 3. Remember last week, some of the loopholes that people were seeking to to find were based on uh, the Jews possessing the Scriptures and having circumcision. Paul is now going to build on that and moving to the charges that the Jews are potentially bringing up against God. So then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it's written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous? To inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, 
None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's pray. Father, you, you know our, our hearts. You know how we struggle to be honest uh, about our, our sin. Uh, we fail many times to recognize how great our need is for Jesus. How we minimize our sin and emphasize our own self-righteousness. We thank You that in Your mercy You have given us passages like this that seek to expose for us the deep, deep need that we have and that only Jesus can be our Deliverer. This morning we pray that You would help us to see ourselves and to see You truly. That You would cut us deeply where we need to be cut. That You would remove and expose where we need to be healed. And that we would find grace and mercy in Christ our Savior and our King. In His name we pray. Amen. So the... First thing that we see here in this passage is Paul is seeking to, to get rid of every sort of, of excuse or loophole or uh, way that people are trying to dodge the reality that God's judgment is coming against those who have broken the law. Notice how uh, he addresses these charges that first come up, these accusations against God. Uh, notice how uh, it, it comes up in light of the discussion that's been going. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Uh, as he's talking about that, the oracles of God, uh, what, he, what he's given reference to is the, the revealed scriptures. God speaking to His people through His prophets. And what was it that the prophets spoke of? And how did God reveal Himself to Israel uniquely? He told them of His grace and His mercy. That He called Abraham, who was an idol worshiper, and told him, I'm giving you my grace and my mercy, and I'm going to use you and through you bring blessing to the nations. Giving, as we talked about last week, the sign of righteousness through faith to Abraham and circumcision is applied to him and his children, pointing all of Israel that as you hope and you long for and you trust in my deliverance, you will be saved. And I'm going to use you to take this message of, of, of rescue and restoration to the nations, but calling Israel to hope and trust and rest in him. 
He's given them these oracles, these promises of salvation. The people of Israel think, well, this is good. This is great news. You have promised to save us. But what about, Paul, you've been talking about how unfaithful we've been. What about this unfaithfulness? If we are living unfaithfully and God has promised to save us and keep his promises, then maybe that means that God doesn't keep his promises after all. Notice, that's what objection and charge Paul brings up here. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, but what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Notice the first charge that's brought up. If I'm living unfaithfully, you know whose problem it is? It's not ultimately mine, it's God's. He's the unfaithful one. Because if he was really keeping his promises, then we wouldn't be living like this. Notice Paul's response to this charge. Can this charge be substantiated? That God is being unfaithful in light of his people's unfaithfulness. By no means, Paul says in verse 4. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Paul is directing us back to the character of God. Who is he? He's the true one. He always speaks truth. He always does what is true and right. And everyone else, all of humanity, may sin and be a liar, but the one who will never move to falsehood, the one who always keeps his word and who is always faithful is our God. So you need to really consider what you're saying when you are looking at your own unfaithfulness and have the audacity to turn that back on God and saying He is being unfaithful. You've missed what our God promised. He did promise blessing. He did promise salvation to those who look and hope and trust in Him. But don't you also remember? He also promised to punish and judge those of His people who refused to respond to His grace and mercy and who lived unfaithfully. Remember the words of David? Notice what he, that's where he's pointing us here. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written. This is coming from Psalm 51, where David is writing uh, a prayer uh, in light of his rebellion against God with his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. Remember, we looked at this uh, uh, last, uh, last year. That you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Uh, David is talking about the, the judgment that God brought upon him for his unfaithfulness. And, and, and David is pointing to God's justice, his rightness, his truth, his faithfulness. God is doing exactly what he promised. To when his people are unfaithful, he judges, he punishes in order, if they respond faithfully, to bring them to repentance and restoration. But for those who ultimately reject him, will come covenant curse. Here, Paul is saying these, these charges for you to look at your own unfaithfulness and to think somehow God is to blame, you completely miss out. He is the true one. How dare we, instead of looking at our own sin, 
try to turn it back and blame God. But notice that the charge just isn't unfaithfulness, but they also are charging God with unrighteousness. Notice how they go on. All right, all right, Paul. So, uh, when we sin and God judges us, that means you're telling me he's being righteous, he's being faithful, he's being true to what he promised in the covenant? So what you're telling me is that when we sin, it provides an opportunity for God to show his goodness and to show his righteousness. So ultimately, we're doing something that ultimately results in good. We're, we're helping God demonstrate and show his righteousness and his holiness. Then why in the world is he punishing us? Why is he condemning us? If what we're doing, this sin, is resulting in good, then he's being unrighteous for punishing us. That's what he's saying. Notice how it comes out. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, remember, through keeping his promises to judge the sin of his people, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I'm speaking in a human way. By no means. Paul wants to distance himself so much from the accusation that God would ever be unrighteous to judge sin by making sure we know this is a human way of speaking and by no means. For how then could God judge the world? What he's saying there is the, the understanding among the Jews, remember we've seen this over and over, they definitely acknowledge the Gentiles, they need to be judged. They deserve the coming wrath of God. We're in a different place. But Paul's saying, look, you've got to listen to what you're saying. If you think that God, by judging you for your unfaithfulness and you breaking His covenant, that God is somehow being unrighteous to judge you, then how in the world is He going to judge the Gentiles who you acknowledge need to be judged? Either He's a good and righteous judge to all and to everyone, or He's not. In fact, uh, here Paul is uh, making reference and alluding to something that Abraham speaks when he's praying before the Lord when Lot is uh, stuck in Sodom and Gomorrah and the judgment of God is coming upon that city and Abraham is, is pleading with God so that really what he's getting at is he wants Lot to be saved. But this, as he is talking about whether God will punish the righteous with the unrighteous or whether he will be fair in his judgments, this is what Abraham says in Genesis 18, the last part of verse 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? You see, the character of God is that he is a just judge and he will always act rightly. He can never and never will be accused of unrighteousness or injustice. In fact, as Paul goes on, uh, he says that those who bring up these types of accusations and charges against God, who wonder why they're being condemned if through their sin it ultimately gives God an opportunity to show His righteousness, he says your condemnation is, ju is, is just. You are actually demonstrating your hard-heartedness, your wickedness, your rebellion. Remember, this, something, this isn't something that's just uh, uh, something that the Gentiles do. Remember we saw that back in chapter 1? 
that God's revelation of God's uh, existence and of His righteousness is clear in creation. And what does humanity do? We suppress the truth. We don't want to acknowledge it because we want to be in charge and we don't want to submit ourselves to God. But here, what we're seeing is, uh, is also we're, we're suppressing the truth as well. If we acknowledge and see our own sin and we want to suppress the truth, that God is a just and good creator, that he is righteous and he's holy and he's perfect, and he will always judge and do what is right. We suppress our own sin and want to, to, to take our eyes off of that and instead choose to blame the one who is just upholding the righteous standard. God is doing what is right and just, but we are like the kid in the class who's blaming the teacher for enforcing the just standard. We are like the kid on the bench who's blaming the coach when the whole time it's because of my rebellion and my hard-heartedness in practice, and the coach is just doing what is just. And that is what Paul is saying here. Of any human who wants to look at and think of in light of what Paul has been communicating, what Jesus has been revealing to us through him, that God's righteous judgment is coming, if you think that the, the reality of God's righteousness and his judgment is a case or it leaves you room for blaming God as if he's wrong to punish and judge sinners, Paul says you are wrong. Those charges cannot be substantiated. God is true and holy and righteous and just. Sometimes these charges come up nowadays just in a, a different way. Uh, to hear about the, the Scripture's teaching, and Jesus himself taught this as well, uh, that God's righteous judgment will involve uh, the, the eternal punishment of sinners forever separated from God in, in hell. Uh, you see, you know, if you, if you commit cosmic treason against the infinite and ultimately righteous God, then the punishment fits the crime. And Jesus says eternal judgment and punishment will come for those who do not submit to and find forgiveness and hope in Him. Some people say that sounds really barbaric. How could a good God do something like that? How could a loving God do something like that? That sounds horrible and heinous. Not good. Sounds like you're talking about an unfaithful, an unrighteous God who would send good people to hell. We need to be very careful that we put ourselves in the place of judging the Creator, judging the standard of right and wrong. He is just, He is true. In fact, this helps us understand and see and go back to what Paul is telling us of why we need the good news of the Gospel and the power and the righteousness that comes from Jesus alone. Because this just God will judge us rightly. And if we have failed to keep His law, we should suffer the right punishment, the just consequence for our sin. But what Paul is telling us is that there is hope. There is hope. This God whom you're calling unfaithful, this God who you're calling unrighteous, He is the one who took on flesh, who lived and entered into our world to save and redeem those who called for His crucifixion. 
Those who scream out now that you are unfaithful and you are cruel and you are heartless. This is the message of the gospel that God speaks to those who are in treason against him. And he says forgiveness is on offer for you. And forgiveness can even be found for these faults and wrong charges that you're making against me. What a gracious God. But Paul turns from these charges that are made against God, that his punishment against sinners is unjust or unrighteous. And he turns and says, let's, let's actually shift now and turn our direction where it should be. In light of the holiness and righteousness of God, when you see him rightly as the perfect and good one, you also will not help but be able to see yourself rightly. And Paul begins to explain for us once again as he summarizes the charges that he's been laying out against humanity. Notice what he says, looking in verse 9 and following. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Paul says everyone, Jews and Greeks, that's just the way the Jewish uh, mind worked in separating the the world. He's speaking about everyone. There's Jews and there's non-Jews. And notice what he says about them. All are under sin. What's that mean? He's talking about what dominates us, what oppresses us, what controls us, what rules us. Notice what Paul says is true of all humanity. Everyone is dominated and controlled and oppressed by sin. No one is free in and of yourselves. The idea that sometimes we hear about about having free will. The Scriptures don't know that concept like our world and some Christians tend to talk about it. Apart from Jesus, your will isn't free. You are dominated and you have been subjugated to sin. Why? Because of your rebellion. Remember what we saw in chapter 1? God has given us over. You want to rebel against me? You want to reject me? I'm going to give you exactly what you want and entrust you to where you think you will find life and you will find domination. No one is free. All are dominated by sin. What does that mean? What are the implications? What are the results? Well, look at what he says. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. This is on the individual level. Think about every human apart from Jesus of Nazareth. Every human who has ever existed. You will not find one who is righteous. To be righteous means you live in conformity with God's law. None can claim that. Is there anybody who understands really and truly who God is? And who he's called us to be? Or what it looks like to live for him? No, Paul says. No one seeks for God. There is not one person out there 
who says, apart from the work of God and the change of the Holy Spirit in their lives, that they would desire to know and have a relationship with the Creator of the world. Why? Because that would mean we're not in charge. We have to acknowledge that we are creatures and that we serve another. We don't set the rules. We don't set the standard. We don't do and live our lives how we want to. He's in charge. We don't want that. We've rejected that. Remember, this isn't just some crotchety Jewish guy making this stuff up. Who is Paul? The one who has been appointed by the Lord Jesus. Paul is speaking to us revelation from Christ. Many people wrongly think that humans are basically good. And Paul says no. Jesus says no. Apart from Him, we are evil. Left to ourselves, we don't want to have anything to do with God. This goes back to that accusation. How could a good and loving God send good people to hell? What Paul is saying here is that there will be no good people in hell. Because there are no good people. Not individually, but also not collectively. Look at how he goes on. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He's trying to be as clear as he can. This includes you. This includes me. If you're here this morning and you think, but that doesn't apply, Paul says no. Individually, collectively, no one is good. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That means there is no desire in their heart or evidence in their lives of rightly relating to God and responding to Him for who He is in their lives. What a mess we have found ourselves in. Paul says, you want to charge God with these things? Let's look rightly at you. You are the unrighteous one. No one does what is good and right. Sometimes people picture this gospel that Paul is proclaiming as what what God is doing is He's going out and sinners are are drowning and, and flailing around in a pool. And God is throwing out a life preserver saying, I'm here to save you. Here's the gospel. Grab on and I will redeem you and deliver you. And it's up to people who are out there to grab on to this grace and mercy offered in the Gospel, and God will haul them in. That's not the picture the Scriptures give us. In another letter, Paul would tell us that in, in, uh, in our sin, we're dead. So the idea of flailing around in the pool as you're beginning to drown and sink doesn't even fit biblically. You're dead and in in sunk to the bottom of the pool. But what Paul does here is he... he He gives us another aspect to it. Really, another way to think about it, because we're active in our rebellion. When Lindsay and I were in St. Louis, there was a story, a horrible story that came up of a man who set his house on fire. 
and he called 911, and the fire department came. This is the entire plan. As they showed up to save his house and to save him, he was in the attic of his burning home with a rifle shooting at those who came to save and deliver him. Open rebellion. One, people were there to save and redeem. And what was his response? Attack. Rejection. Destruction. That's what Paul was saying is true of humanity. No one wants to seek after God. We do not want peace with Him. Away with you, God. Get out of my life. I will be ruler and king. And cosmically, collectively, as humanity and each individual, we continue to rebel against God. That is why this message that Paul is communicating is that the gospel is the power of God. Because there's nothing that can save sinners in this bad of a situation and circumstance than the power of God to act and move and to do what we can't ourselves, and that's to change our hearts. As my pastor in Clemson used to say, your wanter is broken. And until it is fixed, you will not want what is right and what is good. And Jesus says there's only one who is good, and that is God. You see, the good news of the gospel that Paul is proclaiming and the good news that is being spoken here for you and me this morning is that the God that we rebel against is also the God who has the power to save. And he exercises that power to save and redeem rebels. And he offers the righteousness of Jesus The only one who has kept the law. The only one who what we just read is not true of him. He always did what was good. He always obeyed the Heavenly Father. He never broke the law. And God says, I will offer and use my power and my righteousness to save and redeem sinners. You see, see, we can't understand the goodness of the good news if we don't grasp the depth of the bad news. And it is bad. So bad that the only thing that could deliver you or me was the death of the Son of God on our behalf. Here, we see that what Paul is telling us is that these charges against humanity, can they be substantiated? Yeah. Look around our world. Look at how rebellion and treason continues to go on in our world. Look at your own heart. Look in the past. Look presently. Without God working and moving and His Holy Spirit changing and redeeming and saving you, do you know this is what would always, constantly, and forever be true of you? We need a powerful gospel. We need a powerful Savior to deliver and save dead, walking dead rebels against our God. If these charges are true, if the charges against God can't be substantiated, that He's the good and righteous and holy and just one, and these charges against humanity that Paul says can be substantiated, then what will happen? Notice how he ends up. What's the judgment that's going to be? 
We know that whatever the law says in verse 19, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. First, Paul's addressing the Jews who were the ones who had the written law. The law, the written law, was given so that those who lived under it, their mouths would be stopped. Paul's evidencing it here. Remember the ones who are bringing up the objections that he's talking about? Paul's saying, look, I'm silencing what you are saying. Because what we know is true of the righteousness of our God. And if you have failed His law at any point, you stand condemned. But it's not just the Jews, it's the whole world will be held accountable to God. Everyone. God will hold every single person accountable, Paul says. Notice what he tells us. There's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to change that. You may think, well, man, if it's, if it's so bad, and, and, and my, my life at this point has been uh, in rebellion against God, then I know what needs to happen. Maybe we just need to try harder and collectively be better people, and then God will accept us. Notice what he says in verse 20. For by works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Notice, Paul's saying there's nothing you can do about it. You want to try to keep the law? Thinking you will please and honor God and He will accept you into heaven, into His kingdom based on what you are doing? Paul says you're mistaken because you're not righteous. This is the only thing that will result as you attempt to do that you will just discover more and more how sinful you are and how far short you fall of God's righteousness. Or in other words, one of the things that we see here is, what did Paul just tell us before? There's no good people in hell. Guess what this tells us? There's no good people in heaven. Not in and of yourselves. Because you can't merit You can't live up. You can't demonstrate the righteousness that God requires. What hope then is there? There is none. If we're trusting and relying on ourselves. But if this gospel that Paul is proclaiming, that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of sinners for all who believe, and that righteousness being declared as one who has not just your sin has been forgiven, but that you've lived perfectly in conformity to God's law, the only hope that that can be true is that there would be one who would come into our world and who would live a righteous life, who would keep all the works of the law, and that by faith, his account, his record could be credited to us. And guess what? That is the good news that Paul proclaims. That is the good news that is given to us, God's people. That it's not through your works. It's not through your performance. It's not through us trying to make excuses or get God in some sort of checkmate position to where He can't judge us. The only hope is to hope and rest and trust in Jesus. The one who lived the perfect life that we couldn't 
the one who died suffering the curse and wrath that we deserved, and the one who rose to new life, that as we look and hope and trust in Him, our lives can be transformed and we can begin to live out life in this freedom. Hear the bad news. You are more sinful than you can even comprehend. But hear the good news. That in Christ Jesus, you are more loved than you could ever imagine. I'm glad that's true. Are you? Look to Jesus today. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the good news of the Gospel. We thank You that as bad as this news is, You have a solution. There is a way for us to be delivered and saved, and You have provided it. We pray that as we see the depth of our sin, that we would see even more and more the sufficiency of Jesus, and we would look and hope and cling and trust only in Him. In Christ's name, amen.